And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today. As we're rocking and rolling through the week, and indeed, it's Wednesday and uh, hump day, so we we will get over the hump, and it's downhill from here. And, uh, of course, that it's never downhill, so to speak, with apologetics. Everything is awesome. And... Uh, Every exercise, every way we can learn how to explain, defend the faith with clarity, charity, and confidence makes the whole week worth it. And indeed, we got a great show in store for us today. We have a good friend, Carlo Broussard of Catholic Answers Live. He's going to be coming up on the other side of the break. He has a brand new book, which I'm really excited about. I, I love this series that he's been doing. In fact, uh, I love... Um, I love all his books. I'll just say I have yet to read a book that I didn't care that I could say I didn't care for. I think they're all very valuable apologetic material. He he wrote a new book, Meeting the Protestant Response, How to Answer Common Comebacks to Catholic Arguments. So it's kinda of like responding to the secondary comebacks. You know, we're we're used to uh the big guns, you know, the big arguments. <clears throat> Rarely are we prepared for the the natural comebacks. So, great book, and uh, he goes point by point through some of the the big the the major arguments. He does a survey on how Protestants have uh, responded to such arguments, and then he gives you the ammo, as it were, in which to uh, fight back and show how uh, this Protestant response is simply not it doesn't overturn the case whatsoever and so today we we're going through the papacy and uh, specifically today we're going to talk about one of my favorite proof texts for the papacy no it's not matthew 16 although that is an awesome proof text it's a uh, one that's not quite used as much it's luke 22 31 32 if you remember, that's where Jesus prays for Simon, that his faith will not fail. And after he has come back, he's to be, he's to strengthen his brothers. So, uh, very, very interesting passage um, in which I, I'll let Carl unpack that. And uh, it's important to know how to respond to the typical responses that you'll get from that package. So, passage. So, uh, that's what we're going to be doing on the other side of the break. On this side of the break, we're going to do what we always do. We're going to sharpen our critical thinking skills with our Finding the Fallacy segment. Today's Finding the Fallacy is the single authority fallacy. And we're also going to meet an early church father. Today's early church father is Rufinus. Yes, Rufinus, the counterpart to Jerome. And uh, so... A very interesting early church father. Just a really interesting history between him and Jerome, who is a bit of a curmudgeon when it comes to early church fathers. And uh, we talked about Jerome 
I believe last week. So now we get to hear the other side of the story, so to speak, with Rufinus. So that's what's on our docket for today. So before we begin, I want to welcome all of you to the dojo. Welcome aboard, everybody, all of you listening on radio around the country and also all you peeps on social media watching live stream. How are you doing? Great to have you with us, everybody. Also, lest I'm remiss, I want to welcome all of the podcast peeps, all you people around the world who access this show through um, all these various distributors and so on. Uh, we won't forget about you. So you future peeps, it's kind of funny, you know, saying hello to people in the future. Um, it's great to have you with us. And thank you for uh, supporting the show. In fact, speaking about supporting the show, a great way you can do that is through uh, sharing the show and telling people about it. And a great way to do that is through Virgin Most Powerful's official website, which is virginmostpowerfulradio.org. And uh, that has all the programs Virgin Most Powerful produces, including hands-on apologetics. So maybe uh, you're at work, you're going to be calling in a meeting, you can't hear Carlo Bersire, but you want to hear it. Or, um, you know, who knows, going to lunch, you have a baby crying, what have you. Don't worry, just go to virtualmostpowerfulradio.org, click on hands-on apologetics, and boom, you'll have the program right there. You can listen to it at your convenience. And, like I always say, every show... Please take advantage of social media. Share the program. Like it. Post it on uh, your social media page because uh, that helps with our visibility. It also helps get this information out to people who may benefit from it. And uh, we appreciate that. And also, let me give you my uh, official Dojo mailbox. So if you'd like to email me, the way to do that is through questions at handsonapologetics.com. Let me say that again. Questions at handsonapologetics.com. That does come directly to me, and I do answer your emails. Not always on a timely basis, but I do try to answer all of them. And by the way, if it's been a long time and you're waiting for a reply and you haven't heard from me, please, 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 just shoot me another email to remind me. You never know. You know, it's it's technology's a, a weird thing. It's It's so helpful, and yet it's so easy to mess up. You know, so I might have swiped my phone or something, and who knows, I could have accidentally deleted your email, and it's important to me. So please, send me another one, remind me, and uh, I'll get back to you. All right, so let's go to the finding the fallacy for today, which is the fallacy of the single authority. What is the single authority of fallacy? Well, it's usually committed in terms of historical evidence. Many times, something is caused by not just one cause, uh, but many causes, okay? So an a, a single authority uh, could be basically singling out a particular cause amongst many, so as to highlight it. Um, so, uh, excuse me, I said that's not single authority, single cause fallacy, excuse me. Boy, I don't know where I got that from. Single cause fallacy is uh, where you single out a particular cause as like the exclusive cause for something, when in fact there's many other contributing causes, this creates a distorted picture. And this happens a lot, especially with atheists who, let's say they'll point to instances of religious violence. And they might point to something occurring in Sri Lanka and say, see, this is an example of how religion is necessarily violent. Well, 
it may actually have some component of it that could be termed religious. In actuality, there's probably a lot of other components going on, economic, uh, social, um, all sorts of different things that also could contribute, um, politics, so on and so forth. So by singling out one out of many causes, they commit what is called the single cause fallacy. All right, let's go to meet our early church father for today, who is Rufinus. Rufinus, generally specified as of Aquileia, was born about the year 345 AD in northern Italian village of Concordia, a few miles west of Aquileia. He died shortly after Alaric's sack of Rome in 410 and is buried in Sicily. Is a youth in Rome. He was the fellow student of St. Jerome, uh, who he had come there from Striden in Dalmatia. There began the friendship, and more than a friendship, actually, Jerome's, that became uh, Jerome's, what is it, best friend forever, right? Uh, in fact, their friendship was incredibly close. And sadly enough, their friendship also ended and it became shockingly horrible. Okay, so in fact, it, it saddened and scandalized the whole Christian world, uh, the breakup of this friendship. Because uh, as ardent as they were friends, once they turned against each other, they were just as ardent as enemies. But friendship uh, did end. It ended with a bang, louder than Augustine, loud, so loud that Augustine shuddered and warned Jerome that if he had continued his tax on Rufinus, never again could any man have a friend whom he would not dread as a future foe. In a quarrel, Jerome knew no moderation, and this is indeed true. We're reading from Jurgen's Faith, the Early Fathers, by the way. Not only did he not seize his attacks, but he carried them beyond the grave. Rufinus was dead, and Jerome knew it when he said, Cato without Nero within. And Rufinus was scarcely cold in his grave when Jerome, who had once loved him hysterically, showed the showed uh, his hatred no less hysterical when he wrote, The scorpion now lies buried in Sicilian soil between uh, Enclalidus and Porphyrian, and the many-headed hydra has at last ceased from hissing against me. So an opportunity is vouchsafed me of expounding the Bible instead of having to counter the vicious attacks of heretics. So, yeah, uh, no love loss there, that's for sure. The cause of their quarrel is not now so important as the quarrel itself. Both have been accused of being originist, that is, following the teachings of origin of Alexandria, uh, his heretical teachings, I should say. Uh, uh, Jerome set out to prove Origen was a heretic and that he himself was not. His technique was to translate Origen in such a way as to emphasize and magnify anything suspect. Rufinus, on the other hand, made no such denial and began to publish translations of Origen in an attempt to prove him orthodox, and hence started the feud that rocked the ancient world. And that is our early church father for today, Rufinus of uh, Aquilina. And coming up next, we have a good friend, Carlo Broussard. We're going to be talking about Luke 22, 31. Stay tuned.
Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-On Apologetics. And, uh, you know, here in the dojo, we learn all sorts of arguments to prove the Catholic faith. But what about the comebacks? How do you get answers to the comebacks? Well, uh, we have with us a fellow who will tell us how to have comebacks, and that is Carlo Broussard. Carlo, as you know, left a promising uh, career as a musician and devoted himself full-time to the work of Catholic apologetics. He's a staff apologist and speaker at Catholic Answers, holds undergraduate and graduate degrees in theology, and he also worked as an apprenticeship uh, with uh, the well-known author and theologian, Father Robert Spitzer. He is the author of a brand-new book. In fact, that's what the book we're going to be talking about today is Meeting the Protestant Challenge. How to Answer Common Comebacks to Catholic Arguments. And by the way, you can check out all of Carlo's great stuff at carlobroussard.com. And Carlo, welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics. Gary, thanks for having me, buddy. It's always great to be with you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's always a joy uh, having you in the show. Uh, I, I always learn so much, Carlo. Like I feel like I should get some sort of credit hours for, <laughs> for a meeting because I'm always taking notes and getting new insights. So, oh, man, was, I appreciate those kind words. Hey, uh, well, they're well-deserved, my friend. So how, how are things going in sunny California? Things are going great, man. We're rocking and rolling, Gary. Just awesome. uh, trajectory is set here at Catholic Answers. Catholic Answers is just solid as a rock and progressing and moving forward. Many different books coming out in the pipe, in the pipeline, yeah. coming through. Uh, all sorts of different new initiatives that Catholic Answers is working on. Uh, I have a manuscript that is submitted. It's going to be published. And I think I mentioned it in the past. We're going to start editing it, working on the manuscript. And hopefully that will come out probably fall of 23. I think that's the projected um, release date. And that's going to be on unmasking relativism within a culture of absolutes. So uh, that's the idea. I had expressed before it's it's exposing the relativism embedded within modern absolutism. Yeah. yeah. And so um, whereas the old version was absolute relativism trying to expose the absolutism within relativistic claims this is sort of a new relativism where we're exposing the relativism embedded within absolute claims within our modern culture and thus answering or responding to the claim both within christian and non-christian circles that relativism is dead and that relativism is washed away and we're dealing with a new moral absolutism. And it is true that the new moral absolutism is verbalized in absolute language, absolutist terms. But when you think them through and you peek behind the veil or unmask it, you come to discover that it's not absolutism, it's actually relativism. So relativism is not dead. It's alive and well and even more sinister because it's hiding and lurking behind the masked verbiage of absolutism. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I always felt that, you know, the the um, apologetics that are focused on refuting uh, relativism, 
is they always took a theoretical or logistical approach to it, showing itself self contradictory and so on, which is fine. But I think the average person, it's a little hard for them to see. But with your approach, it's you're just basically almost like reading headlines and going yes. behind the headlines to see, you know, the inner workings behind all those yeah. mechanizations. Yeah. So I'm going to be refuting the classic relativistic lines of thinking. But first, the first order of business is to expose and unmask that relativistic thinking that's lurking in the in the modern headlines. So basically, basically I'm going to thy shalt nots. Thy shalt not be a white supremacist. Thy shalt not impose. Thy shalt not be intolerant. Thy shall not be a hateful, judgmental bigot and on down the line and showing how those modern absolutes are not really true absolutes. They're actually relative absolutes. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so I'm, yeah, pretty well, excited, I'm pretty excited about that project. Uh, it, it was a lot of fun writing it and it's yeah. always a lot of fun engaging in that sort of way of thinking and exposing the incoherencies of modern thought. And so the wisdom of the world is not so wise. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love that approach. And I'm glad that uh, Catholic Answers Press picked it up because, uh, I, like I said, I, I think that is so, so much more uh, practical and yes. tangible for the average person to approach it that way rather than trying to, you know, diagram the syllogism and, and see yeah. where the problems are. Right, right. So we'll see how that goes, but that's a year from now, so we'll, we'll, we'll be able to talk about that one when it comes up. Awesome, awesome. Hey, how's the doctrinal uh, studies going? It's going well, Gary. I'm actually having a great time, man. The trajectory is nice and solid. I actually finished writing the dissertation oh, uh, nice. for the yeah for the most part. Obviously, we got to go through it with a fine tooth comb fine-tune it. I, I wrote the conclusion, but it, it needs some work. And there's other parts in the dissertation that I added to that we have to, has to go through a review process with my director, Dr. Gavin Kerr. So there's still some work to be done, but sort of that pressure of like getting it out, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> that, 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 that's, that's done. Uh, so right now it's currently at right around 95,000 words, and that's pretty much my max. So I can't really go beyond that. There was a whole lot of stuff that I wanted to get to, many more objections to my lines of argumentation that I wanted to get to. But unfortunately, I'm just going to have to leave them out. Uh, so it's just a matter of fine-tuning what I have. But it, it's pretty – it's exciting work, man. I just – it's so much fun, and I'm so grateful to the Lord for the opportunity to be able to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, for the listeners, you might think, man, that's really a lot, but the hard part is squeezing it down. It's so easy to write something that's large. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, but you know, getting getting it uh, boiled down to its essentials is always more difficult. At least it is Ab for me. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, writing my dissertation in some ways, <laughs> I, it's just I'm just being honest here. In some ways, it was easier than writing like a camel piece for Catholic answers. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, because with the dissertation, you're allowed to just kind of, you know, let your hair down and just go with your thought and express it with all the different steps that you need to express it in. 
Whereas in a 1200 piece article, 1200 word piece for Catholic Answers Magazine online, uh, it's a bit more difficult to to get everything in in such a concise way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, hey, let's talk about your new book, Meet the yeah, Protestants sure. uh, Response. And uh, we, we were talking about apologetics with Peter and the papacy. Yeah. Uh, we covered Matthew 16, which is the biggie. Uh, but, you know, I, you also covered this one. This is one of my personal favorites. It's yeah. Luke 22, 31 through 32. Maybe you can lay out what is the, uh, the typical Catholic case from that passage. Yeah. So in that passage... This is where our Lord is talking to the apostles, and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now that's verse 31. In the English, you might think that our Lord is talking directly and only to Simon there, but in the Greek, it's humas, which is second person plural. So our Lord is telling all the apostles present there that Satan desires to sift all of them. But in verse 32, we read, but I have prayed for you, second person singular, Sue, I have prayed for you, which is directed to Simon now, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. So the Catholic argument is that here we have our Lord making a very special promise to protect Satan, uh, excuse me, Peter, <laughs> from the sifting of to sift all of them. The promise is exclusive, directed only to Peter here. And on top of that, in association with that, you have this command of our Lord for Peter to strengthen his brethren. So the very purpose or the reason for the protection of Peter is for the sake of Peter strengthening the brethren. So we have this exclusive prayer and promise to protect Peter, Peter and an exclusive instruction or command for Peter to strengthen the brethren. So Catholics argue from these two details, we infer that our Lord is revealing to us that Peter has a unique and special role to play in strengthening the church, including the apostles, implying that he has a rank of authority over and above the other apostles, that he has a rank, a role to play that's superior to the other apostles in shepherding Christ's flock here on earth. So here we have an, a biblical text that supports the Catholic claim that Jesus appointed Peter to be the leader of his church here on earth, and of course, by way of extension, his successors in the bishopric of, bishopric of Rome, given that Peter died as the bishop of Rome. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Yeah, it's there's a lot there. Yeah. And it's one of those sleeper passages. You know, all the guns are usually pointed to Matthew 16, but yeah. I think that's very powerful because uh, here you have Peter. Uh, first, you have Jesus explicitly praying for an individual, which yeah. I remember Carl Keating says that's the only place in Scripture where he sp prays specifically for an individual. And, and also that Peter's going to be the linchpin. He's going to be the source of unity. You know, the, yeah. the apostles are going to be scattered, and so it's for it's up to him, which also includes the other apostles, which is really right. powerful as well. Yeah, yes. that, that, that the apostle—it's very similar to John 21, 15 through 17, 
we'll get to this in future segments when we have some conversations later on. But like in John 21, 15 through 17, where our Lord commands Peter to shepherd his flock, including the very apostles who are present there. So too here, our Lord instructs Peter to strengthen the brethren, including the very apostles who are present there, whom Satan desires to sift them, whom Satan desires to sift. And our Lord is telling Peter to strengthen them, to protect them from the sifting of Satan, implying that Peter has this unique and special leadership role, not only relative to the universal church, but relative to the apostles themselves. Thus, giving us biblical grounds for the Catholic claim that Peter is a visible principle of unity, not only for the church, but for the apostles themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it might be pushing a little too far, but I mean, you could even infer from that, that, of course, that need for unity would continue after the life of Peter. Sure. And so, you know, this also could point towards, uh, you know, the continuing of the office of Peter in that role of unity as well. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a sound argument because we're saying, hey, if our Lord saw it fitting to have a principle of unity and a source of strength for the church in the first century, why not for other centuries of the church? Absolutely. We're chatting with Carlo Broussard and his brand new book, Meeting the Protestant Response. More to come right after this. You're listening to Hands On Apologetics. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Carlo Broussard, talking about his brand new book, Meeting the Protestant Response, How to Answer Common Comebacks to Catholic Arguments. And the argument we're looking at today is Jesus' prayer to Simon in Luke 22:31-32. And, uh, Carlo, I have to say, I, I love your book. I love all your books. In fact, I confess that at the beginning of the program. It's like you have yet to write something I, I haven't thoroughly enjoyed and it reminds me of the Summa, where, you know, there's all these objections and responses. And uh, just like Thomas Aquinas, you know, you have that Catholic argument, you stake out your turf, and then then the comebacks, you know, the yeah. objections come about. So let's go through Absolutely. some of the objections to this. All right, sure thing. Yeah, so basically notice how the Catholic argument rests on basically two details in that text, the first of which being exclude prayer or the promise to protect Peter from the sifting of Satan, and then secondly, the instruction or the command to strengthen the brethren. So the comebacks are actually directed at both of those lines of argumentation or those two uh, aspects of the argument, two of which are directed to the prayer two of which are directed to the command to strengthen. So that constitutes four comebacks to this Catholic argument that I go through in my book, Meeting the Protestant Response. I don't know if we'll be able to get to all of them uh, in our conversation today. We'll see. But the first is directed to the prayer itself. Uh, One of the two that's directed to the prayer is that the idea that the prayer is to ensure that Peter repents and not lose his faith completely, right? It's not because he outranks the other disciples, but rather the prayer is offered because Peter is going to eventually betray our Lord, and the prayer is for Peter to be restored to faith in advance 
of his betrayal. So that's the comeback. Well, in response, my first thought, as I articulate in my book, is that this comeback ignores the singling out of Peter relative to the sifting of Satan, right? There's a contrast here between Peter and the other apostles. Recall, our Lord says that Satan desires to sift all of the apostles, but our Lord prays only for Peter. And that Greek conjunction there for but, day, can be uh, interpreted or translated to express a contrast or simple con simple continuation. But we know it's contrast in light of what Jesus says. Satan desires to sift all of you, and then he's praying for Peter. So that conjunction there, day, or but, is a contrast between the apostles and Peter. So that our Lord makes an exclusive promise to protect Peter and addresses this promise to him alone, there is clearly a shift of focus from all of the apostles to Peter, and thus an indication that Peter has a special place relative to our Lord to be protected in faith from the sifting of Satan. So the question becomes, Gary, if Satan desiring to sift all of the other apostles, and I, I think it's safe to assume the apostles, as well as you and me, they don't want to be sifted by Satan. So how are they not to be sifted by Satan? Well, there's only one who has the prayer of protection from the sifting of Satan, that's Peter. So in order to not be sifted by Satan, you got to stick with Peter. Because to, who, to him be, belongs the exclusive prayer of protection. So that's my first response to the comeback. It fails or it ignores the exclusive nature of the prayer of protection in contrast to the other apostles. Now, secondly, check this out, Gary. All of the apostles betrayed our Lord to some extent. So, for example, Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 26, verse 31, you will all fall away, our Lord tells the apostles, because of me this night. <laughs> so our Lord's prophesying that they're all going to betray him to, in some degree or fashion. And we know that the prophecy comes to fruition in verse 56, because Matthew tells, tells us they deserted him and they fled from here. Now, if Peter wasn't special, and Jesus's prayer and, and, and that Jesus's prayer was simply meant for restoration after the betrayal. Well, then shouldn't the prayer have been directed to all of the apostles? Like, why promise restoration only for Peter when the others would need that prayer of restoration as well? So from the Catholic point of view, the Catholic perspective actually makes more sense of the text. The promise was not to make or restore Peter merely for the restoration of Peter, it was to signify his leadership. If it were only restoration, then the prayer would need to have been directed to the other apostles as well. But since it's not directed to the other apostles as well, we can infer that it's not mere restoration here that's going on. It's something else. And what is that something else? Well, the evidence points to, as we argued earlier, leadership within the kingdom of Jesus that's being bestowed to Peter. And this leads to another point that I make in the book, Gary, is that a, notice how Luke gives attention only to Peter's fall and betrayal 
and not the others. Whereas Matthew does talk about the others betraying our Lord and fleeing from him. But here, Luke only highlights Peter's betrayal and his fall, and of course the prayer of for restoration and strengthen the brethren, right? Now, why would that be? Well, it's interesting. Joseph Fitzmaier, right, a famous Bible scholar, gives us an interesting answer here. He says this, the Lucan Jesus is making it clear to the reader of the gospel that no disciple, not even the one for whom Jesus has prayed, will be safe from a test to his or her to his her loyalty and fidelity. In other words, Gary, Luke only talks about Peter's betrayal and restoration because Luke sees Peter as the leader, right? The very point of including Peter's betrayal and not the others is to suggest, hey, no matter who you are, even if you are the leader, you are subject to betraying our Lord, and you need protection from the sifting of Satan, right? <laughs> so if if the leader needs protection from the sifting of Satan, so do we. And that brings up the question, how do we get protected from the sifting of Satan? Well, according to the text, we got to stick with Peter because he alone has that prayer of protection. And it's very similar to Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, Gary. Remember how our Lord, excuse me, how Paul there records the rebuke of Peter, how Paul rebuked Peter to his face. Often that's appealed to as evidence against Peter's authority and infallibility, when in fact, as many scholars point out, it's actually the inverse is true. That Luke, that Paul even records it, suggests that Paul understands Peter to have a unique role in leading why else waste the ink on the scroll <laughs> to record right. this event? If he is nothing but another apostle, then it wouldn't merit being included in his letter to the Galatians. But that Paul even includes the rebuke, suggests that Peter has this unique role of leadership. Similarly, Luke is including Peter's betrayal to signify that he is the leader. And because he is the leader— and he actually falls, it's a message to the readers that we need to take stock of our own relationship with the Lord, knowing that we too could fall, even if the leader, Peter, can fall. And thus we need protection from the sifting of Satan. Yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. I Honestly, Carlo, I've never ran across that particular line of argument before. It makes perfect sense. Yeah, and as you were saying that, I was thinking Galatians 2, you know, where Peter singled out, you know, apparently— you know, Paul thinks this is a great object lesson that I withstood even Peter, you know? Right. Yeah. So, and so, so it, yeah, so, so, yeah, so that Luke, that Luke records Peter's betrayal alone, as opposed to the others, like Matthew does, signifies that Luke views Peter to be the leader here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Uh, yeah, I can't, uh, honestly, I can't think of a comeback for that. I was... Trying to think, uh, yeah, it, it, th that's beautifully put. And I, I think often when apologists use Luke 22, we forget about that preceding context, which just like you pointed out, that preceding context is key to understanding what's going on with the promise. And if you yeah. don't see that relationship between the two, you only get half the story and I think half the, the weight of the argument. 
Yeah, and I'm glad, Gary, that you brought up the preceding context because this relates to another comeback that I articulate in the book. This particular comeback is directed at the instruction to strengthen the brethren. Mm-hmm. And this this comeback says, well, Peter is only to strengthen the brethren by helping them not make the same mistake that he made. That's all the command to strengthen the brethren refers to. Not that he is to strengthen them as their leader, only to help them not make the same mistake that he made. Now, in response, we agree that strengthening the brethren is going to involve not uh, helping them not make the same mistake that he made. But the evidence and the context suggests more. Because this command, number one, the promise to protect Peter from the sifting of Satan, and the command to strengthen the brethren caps off an entire discourse about leadership and authority within the kingdom of God. So if we back up a few verses and we go to verse 24, we discovered that a dispute broke out among the apostles, like who was going to be regarded as the greatest. And in response to this dispute about which of the apostles is the greatest, Jesus actually begins to contrast worldly leadership with the leadership that the apostles are to exercise. So in verses 25 through 26, our Lord says, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. You're not to exercise your lordship over them like the Gentiles. In other words, what our Lord is saying. But not so with you, he says, rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. And we'll come back to this on the other side of the break. Awesome. We're chatting with Carlo Broussard, talking about his brand new book, Meeting the Protestant Response, available at shop.catholic.com. More to come right after this. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-on apologetics. We are chatting with Master Apologist Carlo Broussard, talking about the response to the Catholic argument based on Luke 22:31-32. And uh, yeah, right before the break, Carlo, you were uh, winding up with the uh, preceding context and how that really uh, gives a whole new uh, level of meaning to the Luke 22:31 yeah. uh, passage. Right, absolutely. So I was talking about how in verse 24, Luke tells us that a dispute broke out among the apostles as to who was to be the greatest. And in response, Jesus begins to teach them and contrast the world, worldly leadership with the type of leadership they were to exercise. The Gentiles exercise lordship over their subjects, but not so with you, our Lord says. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. So notice the implication here is that the apostles are going to have an authority that they are to exercise. It's just have to, it must be exercised in a way that is not like the Gentiles. And then our Lord confirms this in verses 29 through 30 
where he expresses his explicit intention that the apostles were to exercise a royal authority. As my father appointed a kingdom for me, so do I appoint for you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And here's the key phrase, sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So clearly the apostles are to exercise a royal authority in the kingdom, a legit authority, but in a way that's going to be one of service as opposed to lordship like the Gentiles. Now, here's the key. Notice, Gary, how our Lord is setting up this idea of authority within his kingdom on a general level. And it's right after this that he, he begins to zero in or sharpen the focus and direct his comments to Peter, where he prays exclusively that Peter would be protected from the sifting of Satan and that Peter is to strengthen the brethren. So we have this movement from general, more general authority existing for all the apostles to a more specific authority that Peter has in a way that's unique. So the promise to protect Peter from the sifting of Satan and the instruction for Peter to strengthen the brethren, including the very apostles that he's talking to, coming as the climax or the capstone of this discourse about the authority that all the apostles are going to have in the kingdom, and who is the leader among them, it's clearly Peter. So I think once you read the narrative as a whole, move and see the movement from general authority, royal authority within the kingdom of Jesus, and with, within that narrative, our Lord talking about the leader among you must be the servant, and then you have the exclusive instructions being given to Peter. The inference is that Peter is that leader among the apostles within the kingdom of Jesus who is to exercise his authority as a servant leader, not as the Gentiles exercise lordship over their subjects. Now, check this out, Gary. I think we can further argue that this Lucan narrative here of what's going on concerning the promise and the instruction to strengthen, it tees, it tees up the rest of the Lucan narrative about Peter. Because in chapter 24, Luke is going to go on to focus on Peter as the witness of the resurrection. Then in his sequel, which is supposed to be read right after the Gospel of Luke, in Acts chapter 1 and, verse, in Acts chapter one and chapter 2, Luke tells us how Peter takes the initiative for two key events at the beginning of the church's life, the reconstitution of the Twelve and the day of Pentecost. And then, of course, Luke continues to focus on Peter in chapters 3, 4, 5, chapters 8 through 9, 10 through 11, chapter 12, and, of course, chapter 15. So whenever you read Luke 22, 31 through 32, the promise to be protected from the sifting of Satan and the command to strengthen the brethren, as the sort of the beginning of this Lucan narrative of the focus on Peter, it becomes clear that Luke is highlighting Peter as the leader of Jesus's church here on earth to exercise a royal authority within his kingdom, which maps on with and is consistent with the royal authority embedded in the image of the keys of the kingdom that our Lord promises to give to Peter 
in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19. So you have the motif of royal authority present in both essential texts, Matthew 16, 19, and Luke 22, 31 through 32. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a breathtaking overview. Uh, it's beautiful. In fact, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe right before the prayer, doesn't Jesus speak about the apostles uh, occupying 12 thrones that will judge the 12 tribes of Israel? Absolutely, yeah. As yeah. I, I, I noted that as I was uh, articulating the narrative, but our Lord does say, as my Father appointed a kingdom for me, so I appoint for you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's a general authority that the apostles, all of them, will have. But then the focus shifts from the general authority of the apostles to Peter. Why? It's almost jarring. Absolutely. Why? Because Peter has a unique role of royal authority to exercise within the kingdom of Jesus, unlike what all of them have collectively. So there's a collective authority, but there's also a personal authority that Peter is going to have in strengthening the brethren. Yeah, beautiful. Awesome. Yeah, so uh, any other comebacks to uh, Luke 22? Yeah, so with regard to the idea of strengthening uh, the brethren as a leader, one comeback is to say, well, hey, look, there's other places in the Bible where the same Greek word, sterizine, if I might be mispronouncing the pronunciation of the Greek word, but the Greek word for strengthen there is used elsewhere in the New Testament for other leaders, such as St. Paul, where he's going to confirm the churches of Syria and Cilicia, for example, or writing to the church of Rome in Romans chapter 1, verse 11, he uses that very same word with regard to the church of Rome being established and how God will strengthen according to Paul's gospel in Romans 16, 25. But the assumption here is problematic, Gary. The assumption of this comeback is that if a word or a motif is used for two people, well, then the same meaning or it, it, then, then the same meaning is uh, equal with regard to the motif. Or like, if a word is used for two people, then it must be used in the same way with regard to those two people. Or to state it differently, that those two people are equal with regard to the meaning or the motif, right? Okay. But, but this is, so, so in this case, the word strengthen is used both for Peter and Paul. And since it's used for both of them, They must be equal in this role of strengthening, right? Because Mm -hmm. the same word is used. But this assumption is problematic. Consider the motif of foundation. That metaphor of being a foundation, that's used for Jesus, 1 Corinthians 3.11, but it's also used for the apostles and prophets in Ephesians 2.20. Does that mean that the apostles and the prophets have an equal role to play in being the foundation of the church as Jesus? Of course not, right? The light, the motif of being the light of the world, that's used for Jesus, but it's also used for all Christians. Does that mean that all Christians have an equal role to play in being the light of the world as to Jesus? Of course not. Similarly, just because the same Greek word for strengthen is used for Paul as a leader within the church, it doesn't follow that Peter has an equal authority in leading or strengthening as Paul does. And given the evidence that I've already articulated in the text itself and the subsequent whole Lucan narrative that focuses on Peter, 
we have good reason to conclude that Peter's role in strengthening is something that is unique and different from the strengthening role that Paul's going to play in his leadership with local churches. And of course, that unique role of strengthening is going to be as the leader within the kingdom of Jesus. As our Lord said, the leader among you, the greatest among you must become as the youngest. The leader of among you must serve. And who's that leader? Well, Luke tells us by focusing the narrative on the shift from the apostles to St. Peter. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Yeah, it's almost like uh, some sort of magical lexicon where, you know, wherever the word is used, that it equally applies, regardless of the context, right? That's right. Context that's is right. key. And that's the problem of the assumption. It's, it's ignoring the context in which the command or, or the strengthening is taking place, right? And so once you look at the context in Luke 22, 31 through 32, you see that the instruction for Peter to strengthen the brethren is something different than and unique from the strengthening that Paul does as a leader in the church. Luke 22, 31 through 32 is telling us that Peter is the leader of the church. And so he's going to strengthen the church, but in a way that's unique when contrasted with Paul's strengthening. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. Beautiful. And that's that's just, you know, a small slice of what you'll find when you get uh, meeting the Protestant response. Kylo, uh, you know, as always, the the hour is almost gone. Um where can people go to get a hold of your book and also find out other things that you're doing? Yeah, so they can go to shop.catholic.com to get a copy of the book. That's Catholic Answers online store. Amazon has it and Catholic bookstore near you. Uh, to follow my work, they can just follow my work at catholic.com. I have my own website, corlobrusard.com. I just kind of use it as a, a, a single location to host uh, the articles that I write for Catholic Answers. Uh, but all of the videos and everything else that I'm doing at Catholic Answers, Catholic Answers Focus, etc., that's all at catholic.com. Um, I don't do any social media. Whether that's for the good or the bad, I'll leave that up to the Lord. Uh, so they can't follow me in that way, unfortunately. Uh, but as I said, Catholic.com is where all of my stuff is found. Yeah, good Lord. Where would you find the time to do social media on top of having a family, <laughs> doctrinal studies, Catholic answers, writing books? Uh, yeah, that that's, precisely, that's precisely the reason why. Because, I mean, fundamentally, I want to be able to give my attention to my wife and my kids and I know with that social media, distra how distracting it can be, man. Yeah. So <laughs> That's true. Well, hey, Carlo, thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Gary. I look forward to the next time, buddy. God bless. All right. You too. And it's Carlo Broussard. The book is Meeting the Protestant Response. Shop.catholic.com. Pick up a copy. Wow. Okay. The hour is gone. But coming up next, the dynamic duo of Catholic Talk Radio, the Terry and Jesse Show is coming up next. Thank you so much for listening, and God willing, we'll be back again tomorrow. Do this thing we call hands-on apologetics. Bye-bye, everyone. Take care.